0: I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schram's Library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that's in the news. It's right now as we live, but it's also been a topic of great importance over the course of American history. And that topic is inflation. What are the causes of inflation? What are the effects of inflation? And how can we fight inflation? To help us understand those questions and maybe some answers to those questions. Uh, We're going to have a conversation today with Professor Robert Wiley. Rob is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Ashland University. He is also the director of Ashbrook's program in political economy. Uh, We did a program a while back with Rob on modern monetary theory, and it was such a great conversation that we thought we'd want to have him back to discuss this really important, or what has become a really important topic now, inflation. Uh, As director of our program in political economy, Rob teaches classes, uh, foundations of political economy, which is a terrific introduction to the fundamentals of the relationship between politics and economics. Teaches political economy of the American founding, really interesting course, Jefferson, Hamilton, and others, and their differences, and how important those were to the American founding, also international political economy, and political economy of a free society. So Rob is really well-versed in the topics of political economy and of the, the kind of questions we're facing today. What, what's causing inflation and what, if anything, should government do about it? He got his education, his bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia, and his graduate degree from the University of Notre Dame. So well, I a fellow Wahoo, uh, wahoo Rob. wahoo <laughs> The latest numbers are pretty surprising and even a little alarming about inflation. I don't think we've seen this kind of inflation rate of seven, eight, nine percent for people are saying almost 40 years now. We have a, a, a law passed by Congress recently signed by the president called the Inflation Reduction Act uh, which went into effect not long ago and an attempt apparently to try and deal with the problem of inflation talk to us a little bit about how we got to this place where we are now the 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 ghost of inflation has been resurrected from the dead people thought maybe it was even dead and buried over the last 30 40 years but here it is facing us again
1: yeah very good let's um let's start with today because i think it's the case that maybe the Governors of the Federal Reserve are still, as we speak, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, trying to think about what to do about the problem of inflation. But about two weeks ago, on August 16th, the Inflation Reduction Act, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, went into effect. The major provisions of that act uh, add about $400 billion in new corporate taxes and a much-discussed 1% tax on stock buybacks, which so corporations buying their own stocks and sort of another way to do a dividend. And it transfers that money being raised to give credits, tax credits to households and businesses um, for investing in green energy, or appliances or some, so something in the production process. Now, obviously, that the major part of the bill has nothing whatsoever whatsoever to do with inflation, even though it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. Even Senator Sanders, uh, this was picked up by many news organizations, remarked on the Senate floor that, according to the CBO and other organizations, it would have a minimal impact on inflation. Uh, you don't need the CBO to study it. That's just duh. There's no way that giving people tax credits, you know, shifting the tax burden around to give tax credits for green energy has anything to do with inflation. Nothing to add. Uh, it's just a total non sequitur. Um, but what should have the bigger impact uh, on inflation is um, an expected 75 basis point increase in the federal funds rate. Um, if that happens in September, we had one um,
0: uh, back so, in July. So for some of our listeners who are not as well versed in finance and economics as you might be, help us explain what a 75 basis uh, Point basis increase means? Sure. So that's,
1: um, 0.75%, um, in the, in the overnight rate or the federal funds rate. So when, um, commercial banks need to borrow money, um, in order to give you a loan, uh, they have various capitalization requirements. They're required to have a certain amount of cash on hand. And when lenders don't have that, they have to borrow and the lender of the last resort is, um, is the federal government, and so, uh, or the Federal Reserve System. And so when the Federal Reserve uh, sets an interest rate for what a bank can get overnight to have on hand for tomorrow, that's a sort of base interest rate that then we see interest rates all across uh, the banking system sort of follow. The idea behind raising interest rates is, you could see it a, a few different ways, but one way to see it is to make it more attractive to save money and keep money in the bank. Another way to look at it is it's more expensive to borrow money if you want to expand your business. Um, and that's just an effort to keep to, to contract the money supply. Um, the idea is that uh, inflation is a monetary problem. Inflation is because the money supply is too large, although we can talk about all sorts of other reasons, and I'm sure we will, about why prices seem to be going up. That's usually what we call inflation, but it can have other, problem, other causes than the money supply the idea behind raising interest rates of course is to is to decrease the money supply so that each dollar in your pocket you know is not that it's more valuable but it grows less
0: valuable uh, uh less quickly uh huh so how did we get here from i don't know i'm thinking about say february of 2020 right before covid hit um i think we were uh, unemployment rate of below 5 certainly maybe even below 4% but also an inflation rate uh, that most people weren't even noticing. Maybe it was 2%, maybe it was 3%. It certainly wasn't very high. How do we go from an inflation rate of call it 3% to, you know, tripling that to 9% now?
1: Right. So in, uh, in June, um, the consumer price index was at 9.1%, meaning that some basket of, uh, uh, um, commodities and rent and other things, uh, are 9.1 percent more expensive than they were in July of the year previous. So that's a year end, uh, year over year, year, year end average. Um, that's cooled off a little bit. So uh, in July it was 8.5 percent, but that's still a fairly high, you know, accelerating uh, rate rate of uh, of inflation and the highest that we've seen since uh, 1981, since the the beginning of uh, Ronald Reagan's first term, when the inflation rate was about 10 um so well what happened well a lot of things happened um uh of course uh the pandemic and supply chain disruption so when you're talking about supply and in- when you're talking about price increases um you could of course be thinking about supply chain so why are used cars so expensive used cars are so expensive because we're not producing enough new cars. Why aren't we producing new cars? Because there's a microchip shortage in Taiwan. We can't get them over here. So that was one of the well-publicized ones. And the price of used cars has just skyrocketed. So that goes into what we see as inflation. But then some economists say, well, that's not structural inflation. That's not about the money supply. That's not core, core inflation. Uh, all of these sort of new terms about redefining uh, the measures uh, for inflation. And and until about March or April of this year, people were denying that inflation was happening. It was rather supply chain disruptions, uh, perhaps rising energy costs related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the end of February. These were the causes of, of um, price increases, not inflation. Well, if it's a if it's a money problem, then other thing that was happening in this country was that for the first time, the federal government was sending individuals checks in the mail um, uh, as part of a COVID stimulus back in May, 2020 of course increases the money supply because a lot more people have cash on hands, direct cash payments from the federal government, something like that hadn't happened before. And so it's all a matter of saying, well, well, what was it? Um, Do people have more, you know, cash on hand? So there's more consumer demand. Is that right? Is that driving up prices that people have more money, the money supply has grown, or is it this, these supply chain disruptions? And of course during COVID it was almost impossible to sort of sort these things out. Now, as we've emerged from things, uh, um, no one, I think, is an inflation denier anymore. People may argue about whether it's, you know, co- uh, corporate concentration and companies that are, there are too few companies, so they're sort of keeping prices artificially high. But in in so many sectors of the economy, prices have gone up where you don't see that concentration. So. It's, uh no one's denying inflation anymore uh, as
0: we're looking to that 8 or 9%. Right. I'm just thinking about our good old friend, the supply and demand curve, right? So if, it, if prices go up, it's either because demand stays the same and supply goes down or demand goes up while supply stays the same. Or in this case, it looks like you're saying with so much money being flooded out there from the federal government, you have demand increasing, more money out there to be spent, but you also have supply going down. Because of supply chain interruptions and all the rest, and that means prices will go up, as you say, even more. Are you surprised that it's gone up to eight, nine percent?:
1: No, I was wondering where inflation was uh, the whole time. Um, I was very surprised uh, that inflation was as low as it was. The CARES Act was 2.2 trillion dollars, right So yeah, and that's, if you...
0: that's a lot of money. If you look at a chart the
1: St. Louis Federal Reserve has charts of M2, so the, the, the you know, money supply of what we think of money that's not sort of bound up in, in uh, long-term savings or long-term investments, that skyrockets uh, after 2020, and it had increased since 2008. So the fact that we, the real mystery to me was why we were enjoying low inflation as long as we were. Um, And many economists, this gets back to our conversations about the so-called modern monetary theory or MMT, many economists thought, well, if you're not seeing inflation, that means the government can borrow and spend more money. We can inject more money into the economy. We can extend more credit. There's all of this untapped potential. So we should be doing that to the limit point of inflation. And if we're not seeing inflation, we should keep up that federal spending. Um, Since federal spending had been high and and the you know deficits are high and i was wondering why we weren't seeing more inflation and so it's finally caught up with us um one of the problems is of course during the pandemic a lot of people couldn't spend money so you have this problem of perhaps pent-up consumer demand that now once everyone is back out spending etc you'd expect to see um
0: uh, higher higher uh, levels of inflation so this is obviously not the first time that united states has experienced a period of inflation. Um I'm thinking about you know when we were last here you mentioned 1981 um but you know we could go to 1981 and compare the situation historically or you know we could go all the way back to the American founding to think about um inflation and the problem of inflation in fact that old phrase not worth a continental um the idea that that mu- that the framers uh, of our country had continental money paper paper money printed uh, and it wasn't worth very much in part because of inflation maybe take us back and maybe we can then work forward up to the present but take us back to the america the time of the american founding and the importance of inflation and what you saw cause inflation there and if there are any connections to the current situation we face
1: good so first i'd say that of course it's true that Concerns about inflation are on the rise. About 20 percent of Americans, polls suggest, say that this is the biggest issue facing our country. And then you're right to say we have to go back to 1981 for the last time. A similar number of Americans thought this was the biggest problem facing our country. Um, Although you have to remember then that number was down. Because in the 1970s, people, right, more than half of Americans regularly said that inflation is the biggest problem facing our country and giving all the problems facing the country in the 1970s. That's a pretty amazing, amazing figure. So these worries are back. But as you say, they're not new, right? These are worries that uh, our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation conceived not only in liberty, but in debt uh, and in high levels of inflation and American Revolutionary. And these were urgent problems um, and in many ways. These were problems that the Constitution was designed uh, to fix. Um, the Commerce Clause, where only the federal government can, uh, um, can print money, uh, mint money, and uh, all other debts have to be paid in gold and silver, right? Um, uh, at the end of Article 1 there, Section 10, that was a response to this problem. And there, I think, are a lot of unheralded uh, contributors to our nation. Robert Morris is a good example of these um it was a it was a big lift um to, to stabilize the country's economy and more than that these problems of inflation were related to the ideals of of the revolution of the revolutionaries and of the founders because the the problem, the problem of inflation most fundamentally reveals to us that money is not wealth And the European empires... Whoa, you
0: got to stop for a minute. That's an amazing thing to say, because I think most of our listeners would say, what do you mean money is not wealth? (laughs) Uh, The more money I make, the wealthier I am. The more money I have in my savings account or in the stock market, the wealthier I am. Help us understand money is not wealth.
1: Of course. And when I ask my students, who is the wealthiest person in the United States? Who is the wealthiest person in the world? And it's easy for them to give me the example, although maybe not anymore now that uh, Elon Musk is so leveraged with his Tesla stocks. Nonetheless, they they say the person with the most money. And, and that's fine. I mean, of course, that's the case that this is our measure of wealth, that we, we measure how much wealth people have with money. But if that money loses its purchasing power, it to that degree is no longer wealth. And, you know, you can show them the pictures of hyperinflation in Germany, et cetera. Where um having a lot of Deutsche Deutschmarks in the 1920s, well, those were a lot of toys for your children to make kites out of or blocks, but it it wasn't money. It wasn't, it wasn't wealth um in in that way. This this was a problem that um I think Montesquieu first um reveals in the 18th century. And he's a good person to go back to because I think he's equally influential uh, with the founding fathers where it's Montesquieu or John Locke who are most often being cited by our founders uh, or uh, the Scots. So um, David Hume and Adam Smith laying at about the same time, 1776 being not only the declaration of independence, but Smith's inquiry concerning the nature and causes of wealth of nations. Um, Montesquieu is also influential upon them. And Montesquieu uh, looks at the Spanish empire and the question that interests him is that why, if the Spanish were the ones um, to, col- to discover, colonize, and initially settle the new world um, and draw so much silver from the new world, from the mines of uh, South America and Mexico, why, why were the Spanish no longer dominating the world? So he's a chapter in, in part four of The Spirit of the Laws in chapter 22, Uh, He writes, gold and silver are a wealth of fiction or of sign. These signs are very durable and almost indestructible by their nature. The more they increase, the more they lose of their worth because they represent fewer things. After the Spanish get so much silver from the New World, further into the chapter, Montesquieu writes, Soon there was double the silver in Europe. And this was evident when the price of everything purchasable doubled. And so you think by getting more money than, uh, for all of these countries, uh, silver and gold, you think by getting more of it, you're increasing your wealth. But Spain was impoverished, right? Spain did not have the prosperity of the the British Empire. Spain didn't have the prosperity of the French at the time. Certainly Montesquieu thought so, and I think he's probably right, although this is sort of a debated point now about just how, you know, where Spanish wealth was and how how wealthy or prosperous the Spanish economy was at the time. But the point is that for the Scots and for the founding fathers, this was a light bulb moment, that that money is not wealth and keeping money within an empire is not wealth. And so the resentment of Americans, the Stamp Act, right, they can only buy goods from from England. Why? Because every uh, pound sterling, all the silver that left the British Empire for France was money paid to a French soldier to kill an Englishman, right? And so this was a view that, that old, we call, we call this the mercantilist view of economics, that, that the empire is the market, that wealth is money, and every time you import something or buy something from another country, you're enriching that country. Um, and and these, are, these are military empires locked in competition. Um, from an economic perspective, the American Revolution was an attempt to break out of that. Uh, we, we want to command the best prices for our good and trade with the whole world, as we say, uh, as they said in the the, the preamble to the Declaration.
0: Um, so you've got a, a, a political thinker like Montesquieu, a Frenchman, saying way back in the 18th century that money is not wealth. It's a sign of wealth. But if the more money you have, if you don't have as much wealth being pro- uh, goods being produced, you get inflation, as he says, double the money, double the prices of things. And money actually starts to lose value and com- and not be at, as valuable, not be as much a sign of wealth as it had been before. The American founders see that, but they face a big problem, right? Which is in the founding, there's a lot of money is printed money by Congress, but also by the states. And so you have a flood of money out there that's cheap and almost worthless. I guess over time, am I right to say, in the American founding, we had to get our public finances correct. And as you say, Robert Morris, people like Alexander Hamilton worked to get America's public financial system stabilized so that we didn't have that kind of runaway inflation. But then there have been moments, again, when inflation became a problem. Um, You know, again, the one that's probably most in the minds of our listeners and some of whom lived through that period, I certainly did was the 70s and the early 1980s, right, as Ronald Reagan became president. What was the inflationary situation in the 70s? What caused inflation? And how did someone like Reagan end up actually dealing with inflation and really breaking inflation to the point where, as you say, it hasn't surfaced as a problem for the last 40 years? So to put
1: a fine point on your recap. It's the case that inflation is the problem to which the most fundamental principles of political economy, or we now simply call economics, are the answer, that wealth is purchasing power and you have to increase that. Or as Adam Smith says, that money runs after goods. Goods don't run after money. And in the 1780s, right, we get um, the line of the Constitution is no state um, is able to coin money or make anything but gold and silver, a coin and tender of the payment of debts. So until the time of the great depression, um, if you're talking about American economic history, the money supply is should gold or should silver uh, be money, right? And, and people that were looser with monetary policy usually favored silver because there was more of it. Uh, sound money. Um, this was a cross party split in many cases. It wasn't the cases. That, that the Democrats, the Republicans uh, were on one side or the other and sort of sound, tight money people were, were, were gold bugs. That, you know, for, the, for my students, while it, while it might be simpler once they understand the principles, isn't exactly the way we talk about monetary policy now. And so now thinking about um, inflation, especially um, uh, inflation where, where money is fiat, uh, where money is, is is printed, it's not backed by gold or silver. We look to the '70s. Uh, why the '70s? Um, because that that was the decade in where uh, where America finally abandoned the gold standard and money wasn't backed by gold. So that's uh, one way to radically increase the money supply to say it doesn't have to be tied mm-hmm. by gold that uh, tied back or pegged back to gold that the federal government has in Fort Knox. One thing that causes the inflation of the 1970s, I think, is in a way, a way that economists forget those lessons, those fundamental lessons of the principles of economics that inflation reveals um, about wealth and purchasing power. So what they believed that they could do, they had a high degree of confidence that uh, counter-cyclical spending could manage the economy. So... Explain what that is. Um, The Federal Reserve has two mandates. Uh, Its purpose is to um, keep an eye on unemployment and keep an eye on inflation. And many economists observed that there was an empirical relationship between unemployment and inflation. Uh, When unemployment was low, the job market was good. Sound familiar? Like right now, inflation tended to be high. And when unemployment was high, inflation tended to be low. Um, And if you sort of chart countries as points on a graph, um, uh, it sort of made a a curve uh, where there seemed to be a trade-off, a little slack in it, not not totally a straight line. Uh, And this was called the Phillips curve. There's no uh, real theory to back it up in Phillips' mind, but this became part of what economists believed that when the government Spended more, spent more money and increase the money supply, it could solve the problem of inflation. Um, uh, Johnson's Great Society programs, uh, um, uh, if we spend more, sorry, solve the problem of unemployment. When we, when we spend more money, we can solve the problem of unemployment and stimulate the economy. And whenever the economy seems like it's um, slowing down, uh, the government can pick up, you know, when, when private people aren't investing, um, the government can instead, and we'll see inflation tick up as a result but then we'll sort of go back and stop spending as much money. That leads to a kind of overconfidence, uh, overconfidence uh, I think in what um, um, the government can do. um, Because as a matter of fact, empirically, this relationship between inflation and unemployment is very tenuous. And anyone that lived through the 1970s will remember the term stagflation when both inflation and unemployment are very high. Now, now fortunately, um, we're not there right now. We can talk about where we are now, right? But fortunately, the labor market is still very good. We're not seeing high levels of employment as well as inflation. But if you have high levels of employment and, uh, uninf- and, and inflation at the same time, then it suggests that the government can't sort of accept one as a trade-off to solve the other, stimulating the economy and solving problems of unemployment while accepting inflation as a result. And, and the two can sort of spiral and go hand in hand. That led a lot of economists to return to the principles of Adam Smith. Milton Friedman's a good example uh, of one, Um, and um, um, the the tenure of Alan Greenspan at the Fed saying, we really should just manage the economy only with interest rates. Congress spending a lot of money won't solve the problem of inflation the way you might have thought with counter-cyclical spending, so we have to be a lot more careful and a lot more humble about how we think the federal government can manage the economy. In a way, they saw it as a return to the principles of Smith, and I I think there's reason to think they're right about that.
0: Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. So that's a very interesting idea and insight. How, how did the Reagan administration, because you're saying this was a, the stagflation problem of the late 70s, high unemployment, high inflation at the same time, it really kind of wrecks the Keynesian model or understanding of of government stimulation or suppression of the economy to manage the balance inflation and unemployment. You got both out of whack, high unemployment, high inflation. How did the Reagan administration in 1981 come in and sort of break that stagflation problem such that we have not had stagflation problem or even an inflation problem for the last 40 years?
1: That's a complicated question. It's a good question. Um, So I tell my students something like like this. You can imagine, um, faced with a problem of recession, to which we look for the federal government for stimulus, the the machine has two levers, like uh, when you're driving uh, one of those bobcats on a construction site, move the two treads. Um, And you have three options. Um, You can either pull neither lever, uh, and say that markets correct themselves and are self-correcting. Um, this was a classic argument of Friedrich Hayek, uh, though I'm not sure he stood exactly by it his whole life, but about the, about the Great Depression. Another lever is to say what the federal government can do is lower interest rates, right, to encourage private people to spend more money, borrow money, expand their businesses, spend money. And so stimulus means... Um, lowering that we talked about the overnight rate of the federal funds rate earlier, you lower that rate. And that's a way that the government can allow private firms uh, and, and consumers to spend more money. Um, and then the third thing you can do now, you can't lower interest rates if they're already very low. Right. And that was one of the real um, scary moments of COVID where we had near zero interest rates. And we said, uh Oh, we're about to hit another recession. That lever is already all the way back. It can go. We, we have nothing else. So, and then the third, the, the the second lever that you can pull uh, uh, in conjunction with that um, is for the government to directly spend money when no one else will. Uh, now, the idea that as soon as you hit a recession, you pull that lever is what's countercyclical spending, right? That's Keynes's idea. Um, Keynes even viewed a world, or or envisioned, looked forward to a world where there would be what he called a socialization of investment that all the investment of, the cap, of capital would be done, major firms, major capital investments would be in the hands of the government. Uh, not a very free market idea, not a very Smithian idea of um, allowing individual consumers to sort of, um, and say allowing you know uh, the system of natural liberty, as Smith called it, um, people to sort of innovate on their own and saying that you should really watch the government's purse. The government should be as conservative with its money as plain persons are with their own finances. For Keynes, the government can go into debt um, um, in order to finance the government. That's that's called deficit spending. So uh, back in the 1980s, um, the question is, what, what fueled the, the stimulus? Now, um, the Keynesians who think that it's government spending always like to point out uh, Reagan's military spending. And they like to point out that the Reagan administration, in fact, Uh, did not greatly reduce or or shifted government spending around, deregulated various things and so on, but that spending didn't go down. Um, I think that more credit, though, has to go with Paul Volcker, right, and saying that, well, if you can stimulate the economy um, uh, and accept inflation by uh, decreasing interest rates, Well, by really increasing interest rates and making it a lot more expensive to borrow money or really encouraging people to save money in long-term accounts, you can decrease inflation. So Volcker put the interest rates up above 20%. I remember when my parents bought a house in the late 80s, uh, they talked about having an interest rate of 15%. And when I bought a house during COVID, my rates were locked in at about slightly uh, lower than 3%, I thought. 20, you know, 15 or 20% interest rates. That was amazing. But the reason that w- money was so expensive to borrow in the eighties was because they were trying to get this problem under control. The last thing I would say about uh, uh, Reagan in the eighties is that really put a, uh, constraints on what the federal government could do, because remember the federal government also wants to borrow money. And when it costs that much to borrow money, right. Um, uh, shrinking the size of the federal government or getting spending on, under control during the rate, that was a necessity. <laughs> you couldn't borrow money. Uh, and and uh, in our own times when interest rates have been much lower, uh, that has allowed our government to borrow a lot of money. I mean, you now look at, we I know we have had a conversation before about the deficit um, or the national debt, um, you know, nosing up above $29 trillion or something astronomical like that. That's not as much of a problem when that money isn't expensive and you don't have to pay a lot to service that debt. But you can imagine with a 20% interest rate that Ronald Reagan was not very keen on borrowing massive amounts of money. Um, And as we look at interest rates go up, neither neither should we.
0: Right. So when you look at these uh, moments of inflation in American life, whether it's the American founding, whether it's the 1970s and early 80s, what lessons do you see? as someone who studies this, that could be applied to our current situation to try to bring inflation back under control and sort of right the economic ship going forward?
1: There's a lot of debate right now about whether uh, Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve should continue to increase interest rates or whether they've done so enough. One lesson from history is that they have been extremely cautious in raising rates, um, Not only in the amount that they raise rates, less than 1%, right? 75 basis point, 25 basis point. Um, But also in the way that they announce or signal long before they're going to raise rates that they will. This suggests that no one thinks that inflation is as big of a problem as it was uh, in in the 70s. When indeed inflation was much, much higher. Um, And the only way to get it under control was a shock, right? Uh, Paul Volcker did not signal. That he was going to crank up, you know, push that lever uh, almost as far as it could be pushed. Hopefully, we have learned that lesson from the past, right? And um, central bankers have a little bit more understanding of uh, the limitations of the tools they have and how to use them in ways that don't, you know, really shock. So so that we don't need um, shock therapy, uh, so that we don't need some kind of monetary shock therapy. So that's one hope. The other thing, though, I noticed from history is that we're always in an unprecedented situation. Um, and so take us, come, the, the pandemic years, that's an unprecedented situation. Um, the surprising Russian invasion of Ukraine and the way that uh, um, perhaps things like wheat futures and uh, food supplies, that that'll, but more importantly, probably for our economy, energy supplies, right? That that's another unprecedented situation. Um, because the global market has never been so integrated. So now when something like that happens, what does that mean? Um, But we've always been in unprecedented situations. The framers were in unprecedented situations. Uh, Paul Volcker at the Fed and the Reagan administration were in an unprecedented situation solving a kind of problem that no one had solved before. And while we draw those lessons from the past, uh, still prudence and statesmanship and The onus is on us now, of course, to inform ourselves and see how things went in the past, but we're never in precisely the same situation. And one exciting, one reason I like teaching political economy (laughs) and perhaps not being the person in charge and being responsible um, is that there are still open questions, right, about what the right thing to do is. Um, But... You know clearly some combination of increasing of, in, of increasing interest rates but we have to watch out because we have such a massive national debt that that's going to increase the costs of servicing it
0: yeah i was wondering about that it seems like if based on what you're saying particularly with government spending and money supply and so much money being out in the economy already and money seem to be driving some of this inflation would you agree that one thing we could do is also to restrain and pull back from, uh, federal government spending?
1: The question there is whether the cat's out of the bag, right? So I mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, inflation denial, you know, uh, there's a European, uh, he writes for the financial times, uh, uh his name's Wolfgang Munchau and he says there are five stages, five stages of inflation denial, I quite like that i, I, I yeah, <laughs> right that's sort of a pj or a work joke right about who has the sort of keys and booze right and um uh the, the when the federal government has all of this money and they're not responsible etc but there are five stages of inflation denial and, and one of them he says uh, is redefining inflation so that's that's important i think um to think about how we define to know how we're um we're learning lessons of the past to make sure that the inflation we're talking about today is, you know, indeed the same kind of inflation that we saw uh, in the 1970s. And when people change the definition or change the way we measure inflation, we always have to be, watch out. People do that, of course, because all of these are, are, are political. So when you say, which, uh, we could, could we reduce uh, spending and by reducing spending, cut down on inflation? Uh, maybe so. Um the, the the gloomier way to look at that is to say the cat's out of the bag, um, and that uh, there's pent up consumer demand because people have uh excess savings. And they have excess savings because um the, the CARES Act, uh you know, two point two trillion dollar CARES Act um put so much put a lot of money in people's pockets that they couldn't spend or didn't have an opportunity to spend and now we're and that money needs to be spent before we see inflation go down. Um I'm not sure that there's any amenable policy solution where the federal government goes and takes money out of the pockets of Americans. Uh, That would be a little less popular, I imagine, than uh, giving people people stimulus checks. Um, And so that lesson might be, you know, you have to know if you're a prudent, you know, statesman, if you're a prudent political leader, when you have an economic problem that you simply have to ride out. Right. Um we don't like the idea that some problems we're in just don't have easy immediate solutions. And we don't like to hear the news that um, you know, we could be headed for uh, you know, to use you will whisper the R word, right? Recession. Right. We don't we don't like to hear news that we could be headed for hard economic times and the, the government couldn't do anything but make that worse. Um this is this is a a, a problem of the money supply, that there's no, there's, there's no immediate quick fix solution. Um, that's important too. Uh, and it's important because politicians always have political pressures on them to show that they're doing something. Um, but sometimes it's not prudent to to do anything. Uh, um, when, in, when in fact, um, and it's hard to say, um, whether current policy uh, proposals that are quite controversial student loan forgiveness, et cetera, what will its effect be upon inflation? Um, you know, these are, these are actually kind of thorny and difficult uh, uh, questions that, you know, are debated on both sides and interesting. So it's, is, is an, another way to ask your question is a little easier, is increase new forms of government spending. Will that increase problems of inflation? Um, and there it's hard for me to see, I can't make it any better. And it probably will make it worse. Maybe maybe not a big impact, but um, you know, I don't. You can think about uh, you know your own case about a someone who has to pay off twenty thousand dollars in student uh, loan debts and now has to pay off ten. Will that change their spending habits? You know, well, if that it, if it, that increases their spending, and then that you know, yeah, and likewise the um, you'll, you should you should watch inflation creep up again because of because of that policy. To to name one. That's been in the news.
0: Um, all of these, the idea of fighting inflation assumes that inflation is a bad thing, that it needs to be fought, that it should be fought. For our listeners out there, Rob, why is inflation, what's so bad about it?
1: I'm not sure that inflation is a bad thing, but in, uh, inflation at too fast a rate that people can't plan for. Uh, is a bad thing. So we all know, even before we uh, take economics classes from uh, learned, charming, witty, and handsome professors, that, well, um, from our stories from our grandparents about uh, buying soda pop for a nickel or a quarter uh, and not the $2 we'd spend at the vending machine now, we all understand um, that uh, inflation uh, is real and we we should prepare for it. The problem is when the rate of inflation increases, you know, from 2 or 3% uh, year over year to 8 or 9%. I mean, the problem that the strains that that puts on someone on a fixed income, the way that, you know, that's so unfair for a retiree, maybe a younger person like myself, thinking about a career, you know, thinking about ways to earn money, uh, it's less of a problem, right? You, you have to adjust. But of course, some people in our economy can't. Adjust right because they've um, they've already saved what they thought they needed to save etc. So in those ways, inflation can be a big problem, um, and that's one reason why uh, the Fed, one part of the Federal Reserve's dual mandate is to keep inflation um, to keep inflation under control. Um, of course, it's related to how responsible the government's being with its dare I say our money, um, because as you pointed out earlier, that's part of inflation too. Um, and you you have, you have to, um, you know, keep an eye on that as well when you're making any kind of argument for government spending.
0: All right. I always hate to ask economists or even political economists like yourself to make a prediction. Uh, what was Harry? What did Harry Truman say? Will someone get me a one handed economist? So not on the one hand, this and on the other <laughs> economists <laughs> always want to give us that. But I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. What do you predict will be the road ahead for inflation in the American economy? Over the next year or two.
1: So I saw an alarming report. Uh, I think this was it uh, from Citibank that um, the, in the UK they expected inflation to reach 18% uh, this winter. Wow, that's very high. And I was reading and I saw another um, uh, disturbing statistic about German. Now, inflation, we're measuring with the consumer price index, but producers also have price indexes, price indices. And in the case of Germany, they're looking at 37, uh, the producer producer prices are up 37%. So, so these are um, almost, in the case of inflation, that's our 1970s. In the case of the German industry, that's an existential number, right? I mean, boy, firms... And of course, in some ways, that's localized. That's, that's natural gas from Russia. And that's an energy crisis that Europe is facing. I think we're in much better stead. Uh, um, part of that is energy independence. Um, and I maybe wish there were more ways to get things like liquid, liquid natural gas to, to, to Europe, but more of a sort of integrated market in those ways. Um, I don't think we'll be we, the outlook is quite as grim for us, uh, in this country, uh, in the United States. I think we've already seen inflation begin to go get under control. I wonder if even the rumor of a 75 basis point interest rate increase in September will cool things off. And if I had to make a prediction, I'd say the fed, that will either be their last interest rate hike of that amount, or it will be surprisingly, uh, 50 or 25 basis points to, you know, get the equity markets to rebound a bit. I think we might be um, at the end of trying to cool inflation in this country and we'll watch, I think inflation will still be uh, high compared to what it's been. Um, but more importantly is watching it dip month after month to say, okay, right. The rate's going down. We can plan for it. We know it's a problem, but, uh, but, but things are going back to what, what could be considered normal and, and sustainable especially for people on fixed incomes or, or, you know, for people at the margins for whom these are, you know, this is a grocery bill or this is choosing between um, putting gas in your car or or home heating oil in your, you know, your boiler. So um, that's, that's my hope that we're not out of the woods, but I'm kind of optimistic. I'm optimistic for once, Jeff, isn't that a good, I'm optimistic. (laughs) I'm optimistic that, uh, that, that, that things will sort of slowly go down, but the same isn't true of, um, Of our european friends and allies that you know where 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 price hikes are more directly um, affected i think by the ukraine crisis for example they've got a really long road ahead and um and that's important for us to keep an eye on not only you know uh, for their sake but for uh, possibly prices and you know worldwide global prices and prices in this country
0: That's fascinating Uh, and and hopeful. Uh, I'm glad to hear that from you, Rob. I appreciate that. Good for our listeners to hear that. Uh, This has been a really uh, fascinating, illuminating conversation about the problem of inflation historically and and as we face it today, what's causing it and what we can do about it. Professor Rob Wiley, thank you so much for joining us on The American Idea. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.